Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your children, and your partner. We are going to give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. This is Felicia Allen. I'm a social media marketer, writer, and mom to three boys, ages five, three, and two. And I'm Terilyn Griffin, an English professor turned stay-at-home mom to four kids, ages 11, 9, 5, and 3. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you, our awesome listeners. Let's find the magic together. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everybody, we are so excited to be back today with another interview. And we are talking today about Carolyn and I's dreaded baby topic that we get a ton of questions on, and that is sleep. Um, And we have an expert here here today. Her name is Kim Holly, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here with y'all talking today. Um, I am a holistic sleep consultant and lactation counselor, and I specialize in helping families with infants and toddlers improve sleep in a gentle, holistic, attachment-focused way. And luckily for these times, I do it all virtually. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I, I help everyone sleep better and be more confident and um, stay connected to their little ones through the whole process. I love it. And Kim, tell us um, how old your kids are and boys or girls? Uh, Yeah. So I live in Washington, D.C. I have a seven-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl um, and they are feisty and full of energy and (laughs) fun and challenging and all that lovely, wonderful stuff. Awesome. So cool. All right. Well, as usual, we're going to start off with our face palms and high fives today. Okay. Well, my high five is that this last week, as you guys know, I've been moving and packing boxes and it's during quarantine time. So it's been, it's been a challenge. But um, last week we decided as a family just to like get out and go on a little quarantine vacation. And we went south of where we are now about five hours and the sun was out and it was glorious. And there was like the state parks were open down there. And so we were just able to have like this amazing family time in the sunlight, in nature, not by anybody else. And it was like exactly what my soul needed, like high five to nature this week because we went anyway, it was in St. George, Utah. And like the, there's like red rocks and 
it made me seriously like it just filled my soul in a way that I've really been needing that I needed that wild time the time with just my family and it was like just total high five to the beauty of nature without anybody else around it was great I love that we also went south and it was yeah it was really nice time to break out of our shells (laughs) um so I have a face palm today I was they're always kind of a mix so I don't know if this is necessarily a baseball <laughs> but um I was just telling Carolyn I've noticed this morning that my capacity for like actual workout being activeness has really dropped off in my pregnancy and I'm feeling like my my threshold for activity like my boys are like you know, come help me get my bike back across the street. And I'm like, all right, here's my workout for the day. So I've hit that point in pregnancy. I'm getting excited. That means baby's coming pretty soon. And yeah, so it's a baseball mix with a high five because babies are high five, but I'm feeling a little winded all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And she's looking so cute. I love when you can actually like the belly is round. It's so cute. All right, Kim, let's hear yours. Um, well, I was going to do a face palm, but um, now what's coming into my mind is a high five. And uh, it's been really rainy in, in D.C. a lot. Um, but yesterday was absolutely gorgeous. It was the 60s. It was sunny. It was beautiful. And um, my seven-year-old really, really wanted us to eat breakfast out on our back deck. Mm -hmm. Um, which of course is more work finding things that won't be broken by the two-year-old and all that kind of, you know, negotiating, but we ended up Mm -hmm. eating outside, um, leftovers, but (laughs) it was really, really lovely (laughs) to sit there with my coffee and leftover pancakes and just have gorgeous, sunny, beautiful weather. The Um, weather has changed when you're stuck not being able to do a lot nice weather you really appreciate it yeah mm-hmm. we're back to that rain here again today so i'm oh. extra glad <laughs> that we, we were like yeah let's Took do advantage. it like let's eat yeah. outside because now that it's is definitely a high five in our family we are big outside eaters so that's so fun all right guys we are excited to dig deep into sleep today um we are going to be Interviewing Kim mostly, as you know, Cheryl and I have talked about our experience with teaching our babes how to sleep, Um, but Kim is an expert here, so we're going to be asking her the questions. You're in the hot seat. <laughs> yes. And the reason the reason why we've avoided this as an actual like episode topic is, again, we've like mentioned it, but I feel like both Felicia and I just feel like it's it's like over our heads in because we're not professionals about it. And like all of our kids have been so different. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those places that I'm almost like, I, since I'm not an expert here, I don't know. Like, I'm just so thrilled Kim that you're here as an actual expert <laughs> on this subject. It's so when you have a baby, I feel like sleep can become this all consuming thing. It like, is. It yeah. totally is. You just need help. So yeah. thank you for coming. Yes. And we know that sleep can bring up big, feelings feelings for parents so can you just talk about that a little bit Kim how um, we can kind of recenter and get past that judgment when it comes to sleep 
Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing because sleep is big and all-consuming, like you mentioned, when you're in the thick of it, especially in the first year or two. Um, nice. And there are so many ideas and opinions, um, really strongly, passionately held opinions about how you should handle sleep, like what's correct, what's not correct. But there really isn't one right way because every family is so different and every baby is so different. I think it's, it's time that we move past this idea that there's a correct way to do things. Um, and really know that everyone is doing the best they can um, with the circumstances, the information, you know, the support that they have. And that if we listen to our intuition and look at our baby and trust ourselves, um, we'll find the right way for our family. And we just need to learn to tune out the people that aren't helping facilitate that, you know, the people that are making you doubt yourself or telling you that you have to do X, Y, and Z because, you know, it worked for them. So therefore, obviously it should work mm -hmm. for everybody. Not. <laughs> right. Um, and that's kind of parenting really in a big nutshell is every kid's different. Every family's different. And I think being aware of that and how your baby is, is probably the first step on everyone's journey. Mm-hmm not just going blanket statement. So mm -hmm. yeah, I love that. I love you just gave us all permission to um, take in information without feeling like there is only, if we're not doing this, this, and this, just like somebody else said to do, then we're doing it wrong. I love that just kind of gives us permission mm -hmm. to be the parents trusting ourselves. I think that's really beautiful. Or if that way it's not working for you or the baby, there's not something wrong with. Exactly. You. And there's not necessarily yeah. something wrong with like the tool either sometimes, you know, it's, it's great right. to take in information. It's great to share ideas, but it doesn't mean that it's going to translate into being the best way for you and your family. Um, and that, right. that you did something wrong or it was a terrible piece of advice. Like either way, it just, it wasn't the right thing for you at that moment. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. It's one of the, paradoxes I feel like of our uh, society in general that we have access to so much information that sometimes it makes us leave our own intuition because we're just we're all just trying to do it the right way you know mm -hmm. what I mean so I love that okay so this kind of leads us into the concept of sleep training culture so we'd love it if you could kind of explain to us where the sleep training culture comes from and how in some ways it's gotten us out of place where our culture narrative and biology and how that kind of is all working together. Yeah. So um, sleep is tricky because we've always handled it differently across cultures and across history, right? You look around and there's so many ways people handle sleep for, for young babies, but in Western cultures, at least um, about the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, we started shifting how we viewed sleep. And this is where the roots of today's views started. Um, it was the Victorian age. We valued independence, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, efficiency. And we had a very strong belief at the time that you should not give children any affection or it would spoil them. And mm. this was like, you know, patting them on the head was considered affection. Uh, we didn't mm. believe they remembered anything from that time period, like the, from the, the early years, and we didn't believe they could feel pain. And so we just, honestly, we didn't view young children as entirely human, if you think about it. 
that mm-hmm. they had the full capacity of emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And so we had a couple books written by some doctors during this time that were little instruction manuals for how we should parent. And that's where these ideas of leaving babies to cry is healthy, babies should sleep independently, long stretches, no input from parents. Like they all came from, you know, this rough time period and then have grown and developed, you know, over the 20th century to where we are now. Um, Whereas these things are recommended to prevent, you know, sleep problems as they were started back then and they've just evolved. The problem is, is that they were never based on science and um, they were only ever based on the cultural ideals of the time and the views of, you know, privileged physicians who just decided this is how we should parent because they decided it was best. It was never based on child development um, or science or brain development or neuroscience or, you know, any of the things that we now look to today to inform best practice because they didn't exist back then. Um, and so we have this big viewpoint that's built up over, you know, 150 years that, you know, I think really continues because the alternative is that we have to actually support new families, you know, and, um, at least in the U S we, we don't, we're not really set up to do that very well. Yes. Yeah, totally. So those that shift, so those changes that um, we're seeing from then till now, parents being more aware, more responsive, maybe saying um, this doesn't quite feel in sync. Can you, can you tell us those, those barriers that have been set up around sleep? um, What are they? Yeah. So the messages we hear about sleep really shape how we understand and respond to our baby's sleep, especially since most people become a parent for the first time without a lot of direct experience with young babies. Like you used to, Mm -hmm. by the time you became a parent throughout most of history, you'd spent a lot of time around your younger siblings, your, your cousins, your siblings, babies, you know, you knew what babies were like, at least a lot more than you do today. So now Mm -hmm. All the messages we get from our friends, our family, media, our healthcare providers, they're our basis, our foundation. And because a lot of this, the messaging, the dialogue is based on that sort of historical rise of sleep training culture, we learn expectations of baby sleep that aren't realistic. Um, and we really get undermined when it comes to how should we respond? When should we respond? Like what does responsiveness do to sleep? And then the whole paradigm is set up around controlling behavior. Um, this really narrow understanding of what does it mean to support healthy sleep? And so when we frame it around those, those areas, we create these big barriers that parents really struggle with um, because it's not generally in line with a lot of people's intuition or biology. Um, And so we struggle to meet these expectations thinking that they're all about supporting healthy sleep when they're actually more about, you know, our culture's desire for how we want babies to sleep. So what do you see being those? So when you have parents coming to you, what are the most common, you know, unrealistic expectations that these parents have that are really frustrating them? Um, 
their baby being able to fall asleep independently, um, feeling like they've created bad sleep habits. So they nurse to sleep or they rock to sleep. Uh, so are those, and when you're saying independently, you're saying without being nursed, without being yes. Are, are those So the, people okay. are coming feeling like their baby <clears throat> should be able to fall asleep independently or that they did something wrong because they fed to sleep um, mm-hmm. or feeling like their baby should be able to sleep all night long without any wake-ups or feeds at certain ages. Um, Mm -hmm. And fundamentally that they've done something wrong because their baby doesn't conform to this idea that we can put them down drowsy but awake and then they'll sleep for 12 hours and that they shouldn't have to do anything to help them or their baby isn't, you know, sleeping well. It's that narrative Mm -hmm. around the good baby. Yes, I can totally, I can like hear as you're speaking, I can remember myself with my first baby. I would feel so like almost guilty if she fell asleep while she was nursing because I was like, wait, this isn't what the book mm-hmm. said to do. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh my gosh. And then, but I actually, anyway, I got more relaxed with my other children. So tell us, okay, so with those specific things, I would like to know, so you've set up kind of why or how, um, we've been trained to think about those, but can you take those specific ones you just said and explain kind of your approach to those Mm -hmm. things? So specifically about the nursing to sleep, sleeping through the night, what that looks like, what the drowsy and awake is. Are you, are you a fan of laying them down drowsy and awake or not, you know, kind of explain what is your approach then to those, uh, to those different barriers. If someone was coming in blank slate, Mm -hmm. how should I assist my baby? What, what would be your breakdown yeah so I think starting off with sleeping through the night and waking um, I think it's really important that parents understand that babies and toddlers uh, wake at night and that's common and it's healthy and it's not an opinion it's what all the research on um, like the population level research on normal sleep shows us that it's normal that the majority of babies are waking into toddlerhood. And when we're talking about young babies in the first six months, um, waking and sleeping lightly is actually protective when it comes to SIDS and sleep safety. So babies aren't meant to sleep long, hard, and deep. Uh, That's not Mm. actually healthy. And um, they have short sleep cycles, and they spend a lot more time in lighter phases of sleep, which when we think about SIDS and young babies, we think that that's really important for being able to wake up um, if, if something is compromising your, your breathing. Um, but also the lighter phases of sleep, the REM sleep that they're sleeping in, that's when babies, well, that's when humans consolidate learning and make new brain connections. And that's so crucial because the baby's brain is growing the fastest that it ever will in those first three years. And we're literally building the architecture of how the brain is going to function long-term. So they're sleeping most of the time, um, in a way that is optimal for their development. And so, yes, there's some effect we can have on how often they wake up and things like that. There are things we can do. But the fundamental idea that it is better for a baby to sleep through the night is just not not evidence-based. Like, it's not true. Well, and if you've ever slept with a baby in your room... They might not be crying, but they're definitely waking up mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. They're, they're not, yeah, they might be 
totally fine there, but they're moving around and grunting and making little noises. And so, yes, they're waking up. Yeah. All and you know, humans wake up. We wake up at night when we move through right. our sleep cycles. And sometimes we remember totally. it in the morning and sometimes we don't. Yep. Um, yep. So can, so can you on that, I mean, I hate to keep us on that specific subject for too long, but my question for you is, how do you know them when you're speaking to parents? Because on one side of the spectrum is when a baby is getting up so much that as a parent, you're just simply not functional mm-hmm. during the day and then it affects, starts affecting your emotions and it's really mm-hmm. hard versus is there ways to help so that you're still getting a good amount of sleep? You know what I mean? Because I don't want our listeners to hear this and think, well, that means that you should just be awake oh, yeah. all night. And, and, I definitely you know I mean? don't. I don't think that's the case. So there's two ways. The first is that um, the environment, your daily patterns, all sorts of things that you do with your baby affect how much they wake up. So waking Mm. is normal. And how easily your baby finds sleep and stays asleep is part where they are developmentally, part genetics, part their temperament. And temperament plays a huge role in sleep. Um, But also your environment and routines and patterns and sensory things and whether feeding is going well and like so many small factors and we can look at those and address those and improve those to optimize the amount of sleep that your baby gets given their developmental phase and temperament. At the same time, Mm. there are things that we can do to support parents' sleep alongside supporting baby's sleep. So there's how often your baby's waking you up, and then there's the quality of your sleep. And yes, they're related somewhat, but they're also independent somewhat. So baby can still be waking three times a night, and you can be getting really good quality sleep between those wake-ups. Or baby could be waking three times a mm-hmm. night, and you could be getting terrible sleep between those wake-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, yes, I feel like, a really yes, overlooked that's... factor is, like, directly addressing the parent's quality of sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kim, I feel like we need to go deep into this breakdown, but I think we need to take a break and come back because I feel like there's some big tips we need to go into here in that section. Does that sound good to you? Okay, let's take a little break and we'll come back with those um, concrete tips on that, uh, figuring out that cycle for you and your babe. Whoa. Hello. Hello. Okay, Kim. Awesome. That worked out perfectly. Okay. So we'll just dive right in if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kim. So we're back after a break and we were, you're just about to give us a tip that I am like, I don't even have a baby right now. And I'm like pumped to hear how can we then as parents, you mentioned that babies are waking up through the night. How can we though make so that we are sleeping, improve our quality of sleep in between those wake ups? Yeah, so I think this is such an under-talked-about area of sleep. And I think the first thing you need to do is recognize that our culture is not sleep-friendly. So most of us throughout (laughs) our adult life have coasted along with really bad sleep habits. Yes, amen. Yeah, you're young enough, you know, or you don't have children, and you can power through on things that really aren't healthy for you pre-children and then you bring a baby into the mix and it just 
it's the, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It, it's just too much to deal with their normal waking um, alongside our culture's expectations around sleep for adults. And so what do you do? You have to start taking responsibility for shifting your habits around your sleep to support healthy sleep for you. So how this looks really depends on the family and where their struggle points are and, and what they're doing. So it's not a one size fits all solution. Um, but things that I like parents to think about are as simple as when are you going to bed and what are you doing before bed? So if baby goes to sleep at 8 PM, but you don't go to sleep till midnight and baby slept for four hours and then wakes up every two hours for the rest mm-hmm. of the night, mm-hmm. well, you just wasted four hours of solid sleep. Um, so maybe you're not going to do that every night, but can you do it half the nights of the week? You know, what are you doing before bed? Are you on your phone scrolling Facebook, you know, wasting time because it's relaxing? Well, screens disrupt sleep. So can we do that a different time? Can we read a book? Can we listen to a podcast? Can we do something less screen focused? Can we put a blue light filter on your screen? Um, can we set up a relaxing bedtime routine for you as a parent, you know, as an adult that helps you unwind and calm your brain, mm-hmm. you know, before you go to sleep. And then there's bigger, harder things like um, stress, worry, anxiety, overcommitment, getting support, you know, these big picture things that we know really disrupt sleep. Mm-hmm. Um so mindfulness practice, maybe you need sleep meditations, maybe you need to journal so you can do a thought dump before you go to sleep to calm, you know, the, oh my gosh, I have to do this and I have to do that. And I didn't do this and I didn't do that. Um, you know, to, to get that, let, let, let your brain let go of all that busyness so that you can sleep better. And I think also on that note, I know a lot of, um, especially new parents. And I remember feeling this way more on my first where it was almost like the, why do I go to sleep? Because they're just Mm going to wake up. Mm -hmm. And I think all those um, relaxing and that, you know, that recognizing that will help you be able to get, get to sleep. And also in those nighttime, you know, those nighttime wakings, I remember, and I don't know if this is something you see as well, but with Cohen, my oldest, I remember it was kind of a, it felt like a big deal when he would wake up at night and I, I was really roused. Like I was okay. And now it's the whole thing and I have to feed him. And, um, then with my other babies, it was almost like, I'm in like this, like half dream, you know, like nurse, I'm laying back down. There's no lights. There's no changing diapers. There's no, and I saw that pattern that creating, um, way more of a recognition in them earlier that, Hey, this is like, we might need to wake up and that's okay, but it's not like a full waking up time. Mm -hmm. Do you see any connection with those sort of, um, patterns in with babies as far as making sure that, you know, day is day and night is very low stimulation. Do you see that helping? Yeah, definitely. Um, so some of it is temperament. Like some babies just can do that half wake, go back to sleep real quickly thing. And some are going to require more from you. And so there's that that's sort of outside of your control. Um, but definitely. So 
nighttime is as dark as possible, is low stimulation, is make everything as easy as possible, gather what you need, bring it close. Like don't, you don't want to be wandering on your house at three in the morning because you don't have enough diapers or babies spit up all over themselves and you don't know where clean PJs are. Um, but yeah, keeping it dark and calm and making it as easy as possible for you to feed baby and soothe them back to sleep so that you're not creating this whole big production um, and you can disrupt their sleep and your sleep less. Um, okay, we're going to pause there with the trigger word and go into that responsiveness. So when you when you are counseling parent, parents <clears throat> and you're mentioning that soothing them back to sleep and that responsiveness key, um, what are your tips there? Yeah, so responsiveness is a big struggle point with our culture and how we talk to parents around sleep and, I mean, really parenting more broadly. Um, it often gets blamed for a lot of sleep problems, right? You hear the things like, oh, if you respond, you'll create bad habits and you'll um, cause more wake-ups and you'll spoil your baby. And all of those things are not true. Um, we know that responsiveness is actually really important for building a secure attachment and um, helping a baby's brain grow in a, a resilient, emotionally healthy way. And so responsiveness is good. Um, responsiveness helps a baby feel safe and secure and that leads to better sleep and it builds trust and it teaches them that the world around them is a safe place and that their needs are valued and going to be met and that's the foundation we want for kids to grow doesn't mean you're perfect it doesn't mean that you're gonna catch every cue or or that you know if you have to tell baby to wait it's the end of the world it's not about being perfect it's just about the overarching way you try to to parent is responsive and, you know, looking for baby's cues and what they need. So when, so when you say responsive, say, so say we're going to the nighttime now, mm -hmm. um, do you mean, um, cause I've experienced a wide range of this with my babies. Uh, do you mean like, as soon as they make a fuss, you're like up or do you recommend like, for me, I found a lot of times my baby would do like a little fuss and then just like, they weren't even quite awake and would go back. So if I waited like just not a long time, but it was almost just like a pause before I'd get up. It was like, oh, they actually are awake. Like we're going to, we're going to, you know, they're going to have a feeding. Uh, what do you mean? So I guess my question for you is there's a range there of, mm -hmm. is it like they fuss, you're up right then? Or is it like, there's like a 30 second pause to see what is it that they're asking for before you get up? Um, or like, you know what? Or if they're in the other room, do you like them in the room so you can be there right then? Like, what, what do you mean by being responsive to them in the night? Yeah, what does that look like? that's a great question. Um, I think that it in part depends on the, the personality of your baby. So I talk about balancing pause and response a lot um, because you're so right. Some babies just, they make noises in their sleep. They make noises for like, mm, 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 you know, and then they, they're just mm -hmm. getting situated. They don't need you. Um, but that's really different than a crying baby. Mm -hmm. And that's really different than knowing from past experience that your baby makes these noises is their wind up to crying. So mm -hmm. it's about understanding what they're trying to communicate and being curious. And so if you know that your baby makes that noise when they're just resettling, then yeah, take a few deep breaths and make sure that's just what they're doing. You don't have to jump on them every time they make a sound. 
But if you know that your baby makes those noises and that's the lead up to crying, then you're probably going to get everyone back to sleep faster if you move, you know, right away. And if your baby is crying, then you should be responding. You should be soothing them and helping them, you know, calm themselves down because that's what babies are meant to have physiologically to calm down is a calm adult um, helping them calm down. Okay. So we're going to go into that a little bit more. So, so say starting in, in the beginning of the night, do you recommend laying your babies down um, when you know that they are sleepy, drowsy, but still awake? Is that the process that you recommend? No, it's not. Um, Because for the overwhelming majority of babies, (laughs) it doesn't work. And it's not, it's not something that is, like developmentally normal or advantageous for a baby to be able to do. It's something we really want as a culture. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, babies that easily do that are few and far between. And so, sure, if it works for your baby, by all means, there's nothing wrong with it. But the majority of babies need touch and connection and closeness to fall asleep. And that's normal. Like that's, what they're hardwired to want and need. Um, And so use the methods that work well for the baby right now in front of you that help them fall asleep. Those are normal, Um, whether that's feeding to sleep or, you know, or whatever. So you're saying if, if, so like with my, with my babies, that worked for all of them. So I'm just going to, I worked for all of them. The the lay down drowsy. So I'm just going to, not pushback, but I'm going to say, so we're not telling parents that if that works for their baby, then it, it's not a damaging practice. It's that if it's not working for your baby, don't beat yourself up and force it onto your baby. Try one of these different tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm saying work, do what works for your baby. The majority of babies <laughs> do not easily go down drowsy, but awake. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with yeah. it if it works for your baby. Great. What we want is the baby to feel safe and secure because that's mm-hmm. how you get good quality sleep. And so if you have a baby that likes a little bit more space that 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 does do really well, you know, try. You know, try it with mm-hmm. any baby, but you need to look at how they're responding. Mm-hmm. So if your baby drifts off well that way, totally. then wonderful. Use it. It might not always be that way, you know. Because mm-hmm. babies change. change so much, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you, you know all too well. <laughs> um, they're always mm-hmm. changing. And so what they need can change. Um, but know that the majority of babies, that's not a realistic expectation. And mm-hmm. that it's healthy and normal to soothe them to sleep. And if they don't need to be soothed to sleep, then that's great. I mean, just do what works for them. There's nothing wrong with being more hands-off if that's what your baby is telling you they need or do well with. Right. And can you tell me, okay, so first of all, I wish I could have talked to you with my first, because like I said, <laughs> I felt really guilty when I nursed. I love nursing her to sleep. For me, it was like a treat. Like, okay, I'm going to let you fall asleep while you're nursing this time. But I felt really guilty about it because it was like, but I hear I'm not <laughs> supposed to do this. Um, and then after my other ones, I didn't really care. And it was just, yeah, I'm just going to do what works for me. But, and I actually found for me, 
um, and the reason why I'm sharing this, I, I honestly want to know your opinion. I felt like I, I loved watching because Felicia's babies were like, I mean, ama- like Lennon, I still like think of him sometimes when he was like a month <laughs> old. And I'm like, how did he just do that? I mean, it was literally just like her following his lead. It was amazing. Um, and he would just go to sleep. But um, for my babies, I found that I loved that feeling of like connection and nursing as they were falling asleep. And then sometimes I could lay them down while they were still drowsy and it works also. But then there was like a phase out for where things got a little tricky for me. Um, and again, it was funny, it got easier the more kids I had because I think I just was less stressed out about it. Um, but, but when do you recommend, I mean, cause for me, a newborn, like from zero to three months, let's say is totally different the way they are going to sleep versus my 10 month old. And there's like this phase of, I guess my question for you is where do you recommend phasing? Cause I have, and I've had friends who this has happened to where they're trying to be responsive and then their baby's like 18 months old and they're still feeding them like four, you know, like a ton of times and waking up a ton. And it's like, there wasn't like a phase out of the newborn responsiveness. Mm -hmm. I guess my question for you is, is that just a rare, are those just rare circumstances? And for the most part, babies will phase it out on their own. Or do you actually tone back on your responsiveness as babies get older? That's my question. Is it? So yeah, I feel they, like there's sense? a couple parts of that because like it's normal, say, say for breastfeeding because it's, it's an easier one when we're talking about feeding. It's normal for a toddler to want to feed at night. And depending on like if you're bed sharing, bed sharing, you know, babies and toddlers nurse more. Like we, we know that um, it's right there. So there's responsiveness and then there's nursing to sleep. And those aren't necessarily, I mean, those aren't, you can, you can phase back on nursing to sleep if you want and still be responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, you just shift okay. in how you're soothing. And I support a lot of parents who want to do that. Um, but it's not abnormal for a, an older baby or toddler to, need to nurse at night and the ones that tend to persist not persist that's not the right word that's too negative um the ones that we hear about are often really sensitive or strong-willed children around sleep and so most often those are families who are their children are going to need something um as opposed to someone with a really laid-back baby who you can do a few gentle nudges here or we'll just start putting them down like this and see what happens and it just sort of organically unfolds because those were children with the right temperament that sleep comes easier for them. So there's Mm -hmm. never a time because it's always normal to nurse your baby to sleep. Like there isn't a time where that's not appropriate unless it's not working for you. And that is the time to change it. Like we shouldn't cut it off ahead of time because we're afraid that down the road, it might be a problem because we don't hear about that huge chunk of babies who were always nursed to sleep, but started sleeping through the night and cut out night feeds on their own because that's no, there's no fun in complaining about that. (laughs) And there's no way to demonize responsiveness by publicizing that. But you know, lots of babies can do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's no special ages. It's really like use it while it works. And when it doesn't work, then we can change it. And in many ways, changing things with older babies and toddlers is actually easier the older they get um, because you can use a lot of cool things that are language-based to help support them through, you know, 
night weaning or stopping feeding to sleep or whatever it is that you want to shift. Can you explain what language oh, yeah, based? Like, like, can you give me an example them of that? It, reading books, um, supporting them, oh, uh-huh. acting things out in play, like supporting them mm-hmm. with things that you're doing during the day to help them, you know, cope emotionally because usually they don't want things to change, you know, no matter what age they are, obviously they like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, None yeah, of us like, like it. <laughs> they're not initiating the change. So like we need to mm-hmm. help them and support them emotionally with it. Um, and the older they are, like 18 months is generally talked about in gentle parenting circles as, you know, having appropriate receptive language to, you know, be able to, to talk through things more. Um, but it, it obviously varies on the child. Um, and so we can just support them in different ways, you know? Mm-hmm. So I have a question on that and this goes into more o- overarching with parenting, but when you look at, um, and we just, we just talked about this a little bit last week on our episode, but when you look at, so say that 18 months and getting older age and say you're want it's not working for you anymore these um soothing techniques that you've been doing and you look at kids toddlers and that age even i mean even at you know kids forever if you look at okay take away sleep but if you look at their how we're teaching in them and their behaviors in the day and that empowerment piece with kids is throughout their whole lives and every single day and all day, and we all know this as parents, they are going to want something that is not working for our family mm-hmm. or is against our rules or not, you know, they can't have it right now. And they are going to be upset and cry because that's how they mm-hmm. communicate. So where do you, so if at night, then it's like, well, let me hold you, rock you, sing you, read you a book to get you through this. But in the day, I can recognize your emotion for what it is. Like, that seems like a little bit of a disconnect for me. And I'm struggling to understand how you would respond with that paradox. So, you know what I mean? if we're talking about toddlers, right? Because babies have mostly just needs. Um, it's right. okay to separate needs and wants. But emotional support is not a want. So, you might say, I don't want to rock to sleep anymore, right? Whatever reason, it's not working for your family. Um, baby or toddler loves it. So first of all, is we don't want to do it. We don't want to make the change in such an abrupt way that it is more stressful than it needs to be. So we can do a lot of things to reduce the stress the child experiences by how we help you move through that change. And secondly, we can have boundaries and hold them with empathy just like we do during the day, but we're not leaving them alone with that. Like we're, we still need to be emotionally available um, even if they're not happy with the change that we're making and only you as the parent really knows, like, are we moving too fast? Are they just plain not developmentally ready? Like, is this too much of a stressor or is this a change that we need to make and we have to do it as gently and kindly as possible? Or like, should we slow down? Should we do it another time? Like, it's not a straightforward thing. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's something you have to navigate with a lot of sensitivity towards like, how much do we have to make this change? How is my child responding? 
Um, and have to can just mean like, I'm tired of feeding my mm-hmm. baby to sleep. I don't mean like a huge have to. Right, um, right, right. But how can yeah, we do right, it in right. a way that supports them emotionally as much as possible? So how can we take some of the stress out of it for them? So for parents who are maybe in one of these um, patterns, say like rocking to sleep, does that look like, you know, we're going to slowly rock less and then the last night when there's no rocking, we're going to acknowledge, you know, like verbally their emotions and then what? You know, do you know what I mean? Because there's a point at which an 18-month-old is then going to be crying and the thing that's going to stop them from crying is you rocking. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I want to know how we support them there in that. So, I mean, as far as what the plan would look like, that's going to be really family contextual. Like how do we lay a foundation? How do we move them through it? Like there are a lot of options and that's something that mm-hmm. if I was working with a family, we would collaboratively go through the pros and cons of the different options and select them and select some other tools to mm-hmm. support the process. Um, and how fast you move through them again, is going to depend on what are the, how's your child responding? Like that's a big one for me. And also how fast do you need to move mm-hmm. the change? Like how urgently do you feel like you need to stop? Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between like I... being there with a child that is crying, holding them and just <clears throat> being there with them, like lovingly and calmly and walking away. And so you don't have to necessarily start rocking again like you could that could Mm -hmm. be part of how you we do it we could do you know you you don't have to sit there while baby cries we can move much lower there are ways to do it that are are less of that but if you're like okay we have to be done and I've gradually reduced and we've done all this stuff and they're upset then you're there with them you know holding space for that upset and it's different for them than you know if you just set them down and walked away and left them to cry. Those are kind of different things for mm-hmm. how they experience the stress of the situation. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it would look like I calm you down, lay you down. If you are upset again, I come back in, calm you down, lay you down. Is that kind of the, I just know, I can see our listeners saying, but so but I mean, like I part of it <laughs> is that like, that's where the nuance of working with someone individually comes in, like one-on-one. Right. You know, we won't hold you to it. We just want your toolbox. Release it. it. There isn't a one size. So like probably for most, for most parents who come to me, you wouldn't probably have left the room at that point until the baby was asleep. So like we wouldn't move from stopping rocking to I put my baby down, expect them to fall asleep on their own. That's probably not a realistic jump. We would need to bridge some more things before getting to the point that you're walking out of the room before baby's asleep. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So then I, so, okay. So I'm just, I'm going to be the kryptonite totally. here because I, I, I know I just have so many, I have had so many questions about this, you know, moms talking to moms and it seems like it could be, it seems challenging to go down this path where you are um, responsive always Um and then you, there's this certain age where then you're trying to wean them off of your responsiveness almost. And so, so do you think there's steps along the way that you can take that make it so you don't end up at that point where you're 
rocking your 18 month old to sleep and then you have to take it away. Do you see steps for parents that you can do from the start that are still gentle and responsive, but that perhaps you end it's an, it's a more gradual road. Before I I answer that, I want to flip a paradigm on you a little bit. And that is that if parents want to, or can set up to see those moments of rocking their toddler to sleep, as an example, as a moment of connection and really filling that connection bucket for their child, it doesn't have to be a big drawn out burden with every child. Like there's always going to be children that find sleep really hard, right? Like obviously I see a lot of them because those are the parents that are really struggling. But for a lot of parents, if you know it's normal and you can set up a good evening flow so that your child is really ready for sleep, then so you spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes rocking them. If you see that as like, this is a time for me to slow down, it's not like you have to wean them off of that. Lots of parents sit with their kids or rub their back or, you know, really lovely, see it as a point of connection time in the day before the separation of sleep. So... Um, and it doesn't have to be a burden. It doesn't have to be something you wean off because it's never unhealthy. It's only about finding ways to do it that are sustainable for your family. And you're saying in those situations, when you're looking at it as connection, it would, it could possibly, and you're saying for a lot of people just seamlessly goes into whatever your bedtime is when they're older, right? Where you lay them down. You sing them a song while you rub their back before you leave. It just transitions into that. And you can do that really that. gradually over and time. Yeah, but like it goes back to like toddlers are not across the board inherently capable of falling asleep on their own. So we can help them towards that or we can give them the space to get there on their own, which is going to take longer for some than others. It's not like if you're responding or you're present when they fall asleep past the infancy stage that you're always going to have to be. So you can make little nudges and just let it unfold organically, or you can take the lead and really be more directive. But um, I think we always see that as negative. And I think that's really something that we as a culture need to question. Like, why is it negative to Besides the fact that you have to get a bunch of stuff done and busy, 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 you know, that, that dialogue, like, why is it negative to connect with your child before you're separate from them at sleep time? You know, that's shifting your, your approach to, I'm using this as a connection time with my child, as I was just telling Terlyn this morning, yeah, I, my favorite time. <laughs> I get that. So I, I get that feeling that parents get of exhaustion, mm-hmm. especially if you're really tired yourself. Right, right. So, so switching that mindset, I think, especially with, because it probably is few and far between that as the older they get, they, they don't adapt to being able to find that sleep on their own. Um, I think especially using that shift with infants um, could be really important, especially for new parents with that kind of heavy burden of, oh, my, my child should be asleep. It's 831, you you know, works now is generally the easiest thing, right? Like thinking that like you have to make all these incremental steps of separation so that down the road you can be in a different point is just making your life harder in the present for a hypothetical problem in the future. 
So a good portion of babies, it's all going to sort out and it's going to be fine as long as you know it's normal and, you, you know, it's okay. And for the ones that aren't, like, when it isn't sustainable, change it. And then you had all that time where it was sustainable and you enjoyed nursing your baby to sleep that you were able to really lean into and appreciate and enjoy, you know, rather than thinking like, oh, I have to stop nursing my baby to sleep so that in a year they won't still want to nurse to sleep. And then you have that struggle in the present, you know, constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. So when we're looking at this, um, you have found that there is a pattern of oversimplifying sleep. Can you talk a little bit about that? The second anyone is struggling with sleep in you know, most Western countries, it's, it's simply about changing the behaviors. Like honestly, some of the things you were just talking about, it's, well, if you stop nursing them Mm -hmm. to sleep and you put them down drowsy, but awake, they would sleep better. And the problem with that is that sleep is a really Mm -hmm. complex biological state. And it's not something that we have control over. It's actually involuntary. So we can't, force the baby to sleep, just like we can't force ourselves to sleep. What we can do is create the best possible conditions for sleep. And that is influenced by so many factors with a baby, you know, sleep timing, awake windows, naps, sleep environments, sleep hygiene, activities, sensory stuff, feeding stuff. Like there's so many different pieces that influence how well they're sleeping. And so when we're thinking about just behaviors, um, I really like how one of my sleep mentors, um, Lindsay Hookway, talks about it. She calls that the tip of the iceberg. And then beneath the surface are all these needs that affect sleep that are, you know, below the surface. And when we just talk about behavior and, and sleep training, all we're doing is getting the tip, the behavior. We're missing all these needs mm-hmm. that affect sleep below Whereas when I think about sleep and the sort of holistic way of addressing sleep is to address the needs first and see what that does to sleep, you know, affect all these different influences that we know can disrupt or support sleep first so that we have the best possible sleep conditions. And then if it still feels unsustainable, how can we gently change a behavior that might improve sleep? Because it's not a given, like, it's not like if you stop nursing to sleep, your baby's automatically going to sleep better. That's just not how it works biologically. So with those needs leading up, you're saying really good feedings in the day, um, low stimulation at night. Those are, are those some the of things them, you're looking I at? I mean, it's not, we don't want to oversimplify, <laughs> oversimplify the <laughs> complex factors, but that's some of it, like, um, making sure feeding is going well, making sure there aren't any sensory needs. Uh, nighttime is dark. Daytime is light. Learning your baby's sleepy cues. Um, you know, having a relaxing bedtime routine. I see that a lot. Parents have a bedtime routine that they got out of a book that is super stimulating to their child, but they feel like they're doing something right because it's what the book said. You know, the book said, right. do bath, PJs, right. yes. story, bed but they have a child that gets super hyper in the bath. And so like, it's like, Uh yes, you have a bedtime routine, but you don't have one that's working to actually calm your baby, which is the whole point of the bedtime routine. Mm -hmm. I think, and and as you're saying that, I think it's crucial to make sure it's also calming for you. (laughs) Impacts your baby's sleep. 
and your sleep. Yes, totally. which to me, literally, I mean, my youngest is three now, and I literally was just telling Felicia, for me, that means bedtime has to start early enough. Because if it doesn't, I start, I'm counting down minutes till my bedtime. And I'm like, we've yeah. passed the point. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's past eight. And, and they can feel it. Like my kids can feel it when I'm like done and I'm not ready to, con- like I'm not yep. connecting because I'm like, it's past. So that's just, I mean, I'm not trying to oversimplify here because you're right. There's a bajillion things that go into this that are beautiful though to keep in mind. All those tips are so wonderful. The daytime, nighttime, being, you know, being light and being dark making sure there's enough connection time mm, during the day one. I've noticed for my babies is very helpful, especially my toddlers. Am I being present with them when they are feeling emotions throughout the day? All those kinds of things. But for me as a parent, I just want to toss in there. For, it means I have to start bedtime at a time where I can still remain calm and not be and that's, too that sleepy is a big myself. Point. You and know? Emotions are contagious. So when we can go into bedtime calm and centered, we sort of spill that over into our children versus if we're really frazzled and stressed that can kind of spill over um, into them. And so when I'm working with my, with my clients who are really struggling at the end of the day, then that's something we spend a lot of coaching time around is what can we shift to have you going into bedtime in a better place? Um, Because the timing of it is a really, Mm -hmm. is really important, but sometimes that's not as negotiable with some children. Like some children are not as flexible about when they're going to go to bed Um, or your schedule is not Mm -hmm. as flexible Um, about optimal timing. I have that a lot with my parents. Like babies should really be going to bed at a different time. They would love to go to bed at a different time, but work schedules and commutes and stuff just don't allow it. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes there isn't flexibility. So there are other things that we can do to help Mm -hmm. you head in, you know, to bedtime. More more calm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Those are really good tips. Can you give us a few last tips about just sorting through? There's so much information out there and advice, just a way to kind of sort it through and not be overwhelmed yes. by all of the yeah, options. Yeah, it is, it is and seriously overwhelming. I am so glad that when I first became a parent, I had my head buried in the sand and didn't know any of this stuff because, goodness, it's it. I feel it's overwhelming. Um, so what I generally tell parents is to to ask yourself these questions when you're hearing sleep information. First is, does it align with your parenting values? Like if your child could look back and, and remember about bedtimes or sleep, like what kind of values, what kind of memories, kind of emotions do you want them to have around those points? Um, Like, is it, we want to teach empathy and compassion to our children. Well, let's make sure we deal with bedtime with empathy and compassion, however that, you know, looks around whatever you're struggling with. The second is, is it a kind way to treat somebody? Like if that was not your child, if that was your best friend, your spouse, partner, your uh, great grandmother, you know, would this be a kind way to handle the situation? Because we have a big double standard when it comes to children, that we treat them in ways that are completely unacceptable to treat anybody else. And so, no, we don't have to give them whatever they want. It's not about like giving in and giving them everything. But when we have to hold boundaries or make changes, are we doing it with empathy and compassion in the forefront? Or are we just doing it, you know, without any scaffolding or support? So is it in line with your parenting values? Is it a kind way to treat somebody? And what does your heart and your intuition say? Because that 
to me is so important that it feels right and that we're listening to what we intuitively know about ourselves and our, our child and our family rather than listening to someone who doesn't know us. And I feel like when you filter it through all of those mm-hmm. ideas, you cut out a lot of stuff that's just not helpful or not right or not right for you. Um, and pair that along the side of like most often your baby sleep is within the realm of the <clears> normal. Doesn't mean you can't improve it. You might be able to, and that happens, but like that it's rarely about damaging your baby. Like, you know, it's never about all this fear-based messaging around bad habits and you're, you're going to ruin your baby's sleep forever. Like that is just fear-based hype and we need to stop. Um, you know, however you want to handle sleep, we need to stop with that kind of fear-based messaging um, because it, it really does set up so much guilt, shame, and stress that is just unnecessary. I love those three things because it, I think you can filter almost yeah. any information yeah. through those three things, you know? Yeah. Does it align with my values? Is it a kind way to treat people? And what does my intuition say about that? I mean, you can apply that to so much information. I really actually like that, that I filter. Think, I think yeah, it's great. Distilling down to, and we've talked about this a lot. I mean, there's so much information about every single part of parenting. And if you can take a minute instead of just consuming to, to look inside, I mean, that's kind of a sappy way to say it, but touch in ultimately you you have that intuition, you do, and you are their mother and you can find, or their father, caregiver in whatever capacity, you can find um, what is gonna work for your family. So I love that. All right, Kim, so where can our listeners find you? Um, just dump yeah, all the so things where they can get some help. Yeah, so my website is dc.com. And um, like I said, I do all my, my individual sleep support virtually. So it doesn't matter where you are in the country or beyond. Um, there you can sign up for my newsletter that I send out twice a month. It's just chatty and informative and sleep tips and parenting tips and mindset, yeah, mindset tips and all that lovely stuff. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I'm honestly not a big social media person. So I'm on Facebook and that's about it at the moment. Um, and you know, if someone does want to talk about their individual circumstances or, um, want some extra support, I do free intro calls with clients so that we can really dig into where they're at and what they, what they need, um, before, you know, deciding if they want to have support. Beautiful. And do you, on Facebook, are you Kim Holly or Intuitive Parenting DC? okay awesome wonderful I love that you are that you can help people anywhere around the world virtually that's Mm -hmm. really that's really Mm -hmm. helpful awesome all right well whenever we interview someone we always ask them a question and that is what is a habit that you do that is a game changer that feeds your soul and helps you find the magic in your life I love that question um it's kind of a war (laughs) for me between having a quiet cup of coffee in the morning like I really feel like that centers me and allows me to face the chaos of small children as an introvert 
um, because sometimes the noise and the demands mm-hmm. get very overwhelming and I'm just like, I just want quiet. <laughs> um, so having like yes. noise yes. in a quiet space in the morning is really helpful. Um, I'm also a runner. And so carving out time that's non-negotiable for me to get to run a few times a week is essential. And it's something we did starting when my oldest was a little teeny baby that like really, I think has saved my sanity and then getting outside in natural sunlight. Like that's just so grounding um, for me. I don't know. Like, I don't think I could give up any of those three. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd survive. Yeah. Wellness, exercise, and nature. All the things. Those are our pillars. Those are, we have, we have a few things we always go back to. And I love that you just touched on those. You need, you need stillness time. You need outside time and you need to, you know, you need to take care of your body. Either, you so. need to move. Yep. There's that. Oh. Nope. Right. Nope. Right. <laughs> I'm with you. Pleasure is great too. So I love that. Oh, well, thank you, Kim. You're amazing. I'm sure so many of our listeners are so grateful that we so had much. you on here. So thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, let's find the magic. Awesome. All right, Kim, you're still on. Just, Kim, thank huh? you so much. It was so fun talking with you. I have to know, well, first, I have to know why, what brings you to DC? Like, are you, I mean, living like you said on Capitol uh, Hill. Grad like, where, school did originally. What brings you there? That sounds um, exciting. Like, and then I just stayed. Okay. Um, I moved here for grad school. My husband moved here because I moved here. I mean, we were dating at the time. Um, and then it was a good place for him geographically job wise and we just stayed yeah it's a weird place to live like it's full of a lot of crazy type a overachieving lawyers and lobbyists and sometimes we laugh (laughs) about like um my kid is in public school. Well, right now he's not, but you know, he's in public school. And I often laugh, like when we walk around them, like some of his parents are so like important. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, my husband works for the federal government at this point, but I'm like, yeah, I work with new parents and I'm all like crunchy and holistic. And they're like, you know, a lobbyist or this big, big attorney. And I'm like, hey, so they're like all cool and collected in a suit. And I'm like, I'm in my yoga pants and like save the dandelions t-shirt over here because... <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh i love that oh, yeah. that is so funny that is awesome oh my gosh well you were you were great you put up <laughs> awesome. with my no, hot seat there really, really fun well conversation you were thank awesome you, thank you yeah you were great um well thank you thank you and oh so yay, this episode cool. will go live monday so i'll send you all the stuff and i've been we, I've been working towards doing an email mm-hmm. um, kind of synopsis of our episodes. And so I'd love it if maybe in this next, you know, before <clears throat> next week, if you could just think back and think of like, okay, here's the five big things I would want people to take from that episode and shoot them to me in an email. I would, that would be great. So and it I sounds like you kind of do handout. that that I Already? often give out that has like the top 10 facts that usually come away from a talk or conversation with me would, would sending you that handout and then you can, cool. I mean, you okay. can send it yeah. out or yeah. you could use it as a basis to kind of distill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll just use awesome. it. Okay. That'd be perfect. Yeah. Yes, this was really fun. <laughs> All right.
So it. fun. You are so fun to talk to. If we have um, more I would questions, we want to go deeper. Like anything from back. like mindset to, you know, anything <laughs> digging in any more detail, I would absolutely love to do. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Enjoy your All right. Yeah, you too. Bye. Have a good day.